0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories about everything here on this show, the arts, sports, history, business, and of course, family, more than anything, family, that's one of our biggest subjects, and we've covered quite a number of divorce stories, Frank Abagnale's story about his family's divorce, and Frank Abagnale is the guy who is chronicled in Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can. Well, wait till you hear his story about his family's divorce and the consequences. and We know there are all kinds of reasons to have divorces, some good, some not so good, but it's a painful thing to go through. And with that, we bring you a letter written and performed by a young lady studying at the University of Illinois. Her name is Carly Konich, and the title of the letter, To the Stepfather I Didn't Want or Deserve But Desperately Needed.
1: To the stepfather, I didn't want or deserve, but desperately needed. I never planned on my parents not being together, and I certainly never planned on having a stepfather. The idea of seeing my mother love someone other than my father brought tears to my eyes. When you entered my life, I hated you without even getting to know you. In my eyes, you were attempting to fill the place of my father, and that broke my heart. My sadness came across as anger and I took it all out on you. I had no interest in making things easy for you. I resisted your presence with everything that I had. My mother was my best friend and to have someone else competing for her attention brought out the worst in me. For that, I would like to say that I am sorry. I cannot believe that you stuck around despite the fact that I made your life a living hell. You never ran. You stayed and loved my mother through it all. You even showed love for me, despite how awful I was to you. I guess that's when it really hit me. You weren't a monster at all. You were a kind, patient, loving man who was ready to do anything to make my mother happy. You were consistently there for both me and my mother on our best days and our worst days. You gave me the fatherly advice and guidance that I did not ask for, but desperately needed. You blessed me with not only your presence in my life, but also the presence of your children. I don't know if I could survive a day without any of you. You are my family now and forever. I never thought that such a happy ending could come from such a painfully hard situation. I wanna say thank you from the bottom of my heart. You have taught me how to be there for those who need you, how to be patient, and how to love with no limitations. My life has been enhanced by your presence, and I would not change that for anything. Thank you for being the stepfather I did not deserve, but desperately needed.
0: And thank you for that, Carly. And just what a beautiful, beautiful letter. And, and thanks to that stepfather of yours. What a, what a man, and I think all men would like to have a letter written to them by someone young about them. So thanks for that. And with that, we move to one of our favorite regulars on the show. It's time for Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman
2: doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way.
3: A memorable way.
2: With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became
3: the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says, that's where the windshields are. This is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up.
2: And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bobbs decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, On Being Serious.
3: We have a philosophy of that we take our work seriously, But we don't take ourselves seriously and that comes from just my personality it's the personality of the founder and it's embedded now in the dna of the company our uh, biggest holiday is uh, halloween uh, which we celebrate every year and virtually everyone i'd say dresses up for halloween we have all day parading around in costumes getting videoed because people have to vote on which costumes are the best we have big prizes, thousands of dollar prizes for individual costumes, for small group contests, for large group contests, and now we do it, for what reason do we do that? Well partly it's because I like to act childishly, okay, I'm not, I always, when I, from the time I was a kid, when other people are looking forward to their next birthday, to getting older, I said, no, I don't want to get older. It's a bad thing. I love it exactly where I am today as a six-year-old or as a nine-year-old. And I've always had that, uh, that uh, uh, attitude about staying young. Now, of course, our bodies tend to get a little older every year, maybe by one year every year, but that doesn't mean your attitude has to be. And uh, so playing hard and having fun has always been a part of my character, but it's also useful for business. When people see that the chairman and the CEO dress up as uh, uh, crash dummies or as uh, getting back to the future uh, characters, when they see me as a top banana in a banana suit or top dog dressed as a hot dog, when they see that, they realize that I'm just another person. I happen to have more authority than they do uh, because I started the company. But other than that, we are all in this together. And the fact that, that we dress up and make fun of ourselves, we even cross-dress, that's part of the culture of the company, too. Uh, and, and that's before it became popular to do it, right, As a matter of fact. When you see that the, your executives are doing these things, the next day you see them in the cafeteria, you're more likely to be able to walk up to them and feel comfortable to talk to them, right, even though they may not be in costume. Because the day before you were interacting with them as another character out of, uh, out of a movie or of, uh, out of a cartoon. So it works great for our business. I'm not sure it would work great in every business, but my worry is to make sure that Cognix is the best possible place to work.
0: Oh well, and it sounds like it, Dr. Bob and I'll be broadcasting an address coming up soon. I just won't say when. I know that just repulsed our entire staff here. This is Our American Stories, life lessons from Dr. Bob. is Our American Stories, where we tell you stories about everything. History, sports, the arts, love, faith, and courage. And today, Faith brings us the story of the Baker family. They're our neighbors here in Oxford, Mississippi. We're about an hour south of Memphis and broadcast from a small town. And we love bringing our stories to big towns and small towns across the country. Take it away, Faith.
4: Who's your favorite princess?
5: The princess
4: Elsa. Oh, that's a good one.
5: Yeah. Maybe in my family, I don't know. I don't know what princess I like. Oh.
4: There's so many. Yeah. (laughs) That was Lily Baker. She's your normal four-year-old that loves princesses, the DreamWorks animation movie Trolls, Chick-fil-A, and singing. But she doesn't have the life of the normal four-year-old. Lily has acute lymphoblastic leukemia. This is a type of cancer where the bone marrow makes too many immature white blood cells called lymphocytes. She was diagnosed in March 2017 when she was just three years old. Her parents, Nicole and Lee Baker, were naturally shocked. But today they are here to share their journey with us. Here is Nicole Baker, the mother of four-year-old Lily. Well, it's just
6: the three of us. We live here in Oxford. We're in Oxford. are And Lee and I are from different parts of the country. Lily's dad. I'm from Seattle. He's from Eupora, Mississippi. We met in anesthesia school in Jackson, Tennessee, and then had her after we were married. moved down here. And we found out that Lily had leukemia. We found out she was sick because she developed a really high fever. Uh, Lee and I were out of town at an anesthesia conference, and she was staying with her grandparents. They called us and said that she had a 105-degree fever, and they gave her... Tylenol, they didn't really know what to do so we said to take her to the ER, they took her in and they just said that she must have an ear infection and I wasn't really satisfied with that answer because she's a very healthy girl and she had a high fever and they took her home. She started throwing up the antibiotics and just got sicker and sicker. So we got on a plane, started coming back home, we asked them to take her back to the ER and She was really not doing good by that point. She was pale, throwing up, and not really with it. And they finally drew blood and saw that some counts were off. So we took her up to Memphis and saw that her hemoglobin, her metacrit were down. They were suspecting leukemia, took her to St. Jude, and confirmed the diagnosis of leukemia. And she got blood
4: immediately, and we were pretty scared.
2: She was pretty scared,
4: too. A port is a small disc made of plastic or metal about the size of a quarter. This sits just under the skin. Then a soft, thin tube called a catheter connects to the port, to a large vein. This is how Lily receives her chemotherapy medicines. They go through a special needle that fits right into the port. This would be scary for anyone, let alone a four-year-old.
5: She has a
6: little Paw Patrol animal rubble. She has to hold Rebel's hand when she gets her port accessed or when she gets deaccessed, and she's okay. we
5: count to take it down, and and then we put it. They put it in. I hold hand.
4: It was a shock that this fever turned out to be something more. Now Lee and Nicole found themselves in the midst of cancer treatments.
6: She. It's hundred and twenty weeks total. Of chemotherapy she gets chemo every day at home by mouth and then we go in every single Thursday for her to get her port accessed and to get IV chemo and about once a month she has to have she gets put to sleep for medication to be injected into her brain and spinal cord and we only have to do that a couple more times and then I think we got about like a year and a half left of treatment
4: how did Lee Lily's father handle all of this
7: Oh, my gosh. Um, I, being from the country where we didn't go to the doctor for anything, um, and especially when you're dealing with kids where they're sick and then they're better and they're sick and they're better, she, uh, when she got sick, I was telling Nicole she's fine. You know, it's she has the flu, she has strep or whatever, and she ended up in the emergency room twice that weekend and then at La um, a day later, and, and when we realized it was, it was something serious, and she had cancer, um, it, it changed the whole way I look at things now, I mean, and you would think being in the medical world, where you see things, where you see people, little things turn into big, serious disease processes, and things that, that that I would have already been, been like that, but, It was very, I was shocked, you know, when she got diagnosed. And uh, now, I look at things a lot differently when when it comes to, uh, you know, her getting sick. I see how, you know, serious things can be. You want to think that everything's going to be okay.
4: Lee reacted like any parent would. You never think that it will be your own child to get sick.
6: It's a lot harder than I think people would imagine. They see us day to day. Lily's happy, smiling. But when we started this journey, this is multifactorial. Lily got diagnosed with leukemia, and nine days later, actually this Friday, we lost her twin brother and sister. And it was just solely due to the stress of having her being diagnosed with leukemia. Just being so afraid that you are going to lose your child is is the worst feeling imaginable. You're so frightened, you feel so vulnerable, you do feel alone and everyone tells you it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay and you just wanna yell, this isn't okay, this is never gonna be okay. Lily was just gonna start chemo and I was about six months pregnant. Everything was going well and fortunately we had her grandma with us that day and I just went into labor while she was about to get her chemotherapy and I leave took me out the door and we had to leave her and it was her first time getting the IV chemo. We're scared to death. It, it was the worst day of my life. It was terrible. And While I'm losing these babies, I'm scared for Lily, because she's now at the hospital without me and Lee, and we don't know what's happening to her. And then, it was so frightening that day. They had called and Lee had to go back to the hospital because Lily developed a fever. I thought God was taking all of my children that day. Lee left, I was all alone. Some of my friends in Memphis came up, and I was just so scared and so overwhelmed. The next day, I was discharged from the hospital, and I had to go back and take care of her. Like, there was no time to cry about the baby. I had to be 100% on to take care of this frightened child. And so there, it was just, it was excruciating. I just, was. We stayed at the Tri-Delta place on St. Jude's campus, and all day long we were afraid, trying to take care of her, and then at night I'd sit in the bathroom and just cry because I didn't have my babies, and I I just couldn't believe all this was going on, but then day after day, just taking care of her, and then she developed the blood clot, then she was in the ICU, then she was in surgery every morning, afraid that she was going to die, so it's like we just had to push it aside. And, I mean, she's still getting treatment. We still almost have to push it aside. and but we had to have friends come stay with her at St. Jude because she couldn't leave the hospital so we could go to the twins' funeral. I st- still don't feel like I've had enough time to recognize their life.
0: And when we come back, we're going to hear more about the Baker family's trials, Lily's. Again, this story out of Little Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast just an hour south of Memphis. More on the Baker's family story here on Our American Stories. This is our American stories, and we've been listening to the Baker family story, Lily's story, and let's pick up where Faith last left off.
4: We left off when the Cole and Lee sharing about Lily's diagnosis, and then the loss of their twins. What is life like now since the diagnosis for the Baker family?
6: Things do start to get better, but she, besides the medicine she has to receive every day, she gets injections in her abdomen twice a day, so we have to give her a shot. And that took a long time to get used to. She'd scream and cry. She'll get sick more often than regular kids because she has a low immune system. So seeing her in pain and when she's suffering and when she's scared, it just makes you feel so helpless as a mom. And not only, you know, just grieving loss of a normal childhood for her, we're also grieving the loss of two other children and her family members. So it's just a lot of grieving. And it's something that I don't think anyone besides other mothers with sick children really
4: understand. A lot of things had to change. What about work?
6: Let's do anesthesia, and we, we love our jobs. We work for a group called Willow Anesthesia in town. Our, our workplace has also been a, a huge support to us. They, I was off work for about three months while Lily was diagnosed, and they just were like, it's fine. You come back to work when you're ready. We've continued to work. Somehow we thought it would be best for Lily for us to just continue on a normal life. Uh, once a week I'd take her to St. Jude,
4: medications, doctor's appointments, and lots of tears. A situation like this would put stress on any relationship.
6: As far as our personal relationship, when we first found out about the diagnosis and lost the children, it was like survival mode. But and we didn't have much time to really tend to our relationship. And I guess we just always knew that we needed to take care of each other as well. We grieve in different ways, we handle things differently, Um, so the best that we could do is just be understanding and be there for each other because we're both hurting in different ways. But I do feel like it has brought us closer together as a family because we've gone through things that most people never will have to experience. We just found a way just to make it work. She has cancer, but it doesn't define her,
4: and we have a normal life. We're a normal family. I mean, as normal as it can be, right? Having a child that is sick and needs daily doses of medicine is nothing close to normal.
6: She started out with uh, Donna Rubison, Vincristine, 6MP. She gets dexamethasone, IV methotrexate, I don't know how someone in the medical, someone not in the medical field, does this because keeping track of all the medications. Because not only is there the chemotherapy medications, but there's the medications to counter the negative side effects. So we have to give her Zofran every morning because the six and P she gets at night makes her sick. We have to give her gabapentin or morphine because when she gets vincristine it makes her back and legs hurt for a week. Um, so I make what we call medical world a medicine reconciliation sheet and I make this at home and I get my ruler out and about once a month I make this long sheet of all of her medicines what times of the day she needs the medicines and there's about 10 11 that she needs each day and I put a highlighter so we check it off there has been times when I'm sitting making this long sheet for the month and I just hate it I absolutely hate it and I cry, and I'm like, this isn't fair. This shouldn't This shouldn't be my life. Why am I sitting making this medicine sheet? Then, you know, just we make it part of our life, check it off, and move on. I think I'm the one that has the harder time. Separate, like, I'm emotional, and I'm on all day long. I have to take care of it. Put on a smile, you know. We have to show her what a happy home is about. Like, we're not sad all the time. We go to work. Um, But I don't get much time to grieve or be sad. But the reality is, like, it is sad. There's there's so much going on. So I run, and I'm all alone on the trail. I start crying like a a weirdo. Um, But then I go home, and it's fine. Cook some dinner. So I guess that's my little compartment.
4: What are some of the things Lee has done to keep moving forward?
7: I probably don't handle it the way... She needs me to all the time. Uh, from the time Lily got diagnosed, all I knew was we had to get her through it. And so I didn't take any time to really grieve or um, probably didn't support her like I like she needed. Men do handle things like that. They just get become so task and goal oriented. Maybe just try not to think about it, don't not focus on it and you know, and, and that probably as far as our relationship, that's probably one, been one of the biggest struggles. <laughs> it was so much easier for me to just distract myself, focus on other things and I kept working while she was while she was off, since we worked for the same group, to make it easier on them so they didn't have two people out and
4: while the Baker family has their different emotional outlets, a place where they have found a lot of support is in the community here in Oxford, specifically at their church.
6: Our church, we go to First Baptist, and they, there was one particular evening where Lily developed a blood clot because of one of the chemotherapy medications that went from her groin all the way down to her left foot. We were terrified, and not only was she newly diagnosed with leukemia and starting on high doses of chemo, but she had to have surgery to remove the blood clot. She was going to be put to sleep, and she had to be paralyzed for a week. Yeah. And we honestly didn't know if she was going to live, and we didn't know if she'd make it through the surgery. The surgery itself was highly risky. She might lose her leg and could lose her life. Never been so afraid, praying, like, on my hands and knees, on the floor praying. Church, they... Put together a prayer service specifically for Lily. They had um, a large number of the church members got together. They had someone playing the guitar, and all just prayed for her that night. And we felt it. This sounds crazy, but we looked out the window of the little room we were staying in, and we saw a rainbow over St. Jude as we were being prayed for. And we knew it was going to be okay. And She was going to be okay. Um, that stands out in my mind. And, of course, they did do dinners. They just fed us, took care of us. We came home. Our lawn was mowed. Our house was clean. Everything was taken care of. People paid bills that we didn't even know we were receiving. Um, Literally just picked us up and took
4: care of us. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Tough times tend to either soften our hearts to God or harden them and it definitely has strengthened both Lee and Nicole's faith.
6: I, I'm from Seattle and moved to Jackson, Tennessee about eight years ago and it's, it's a different culture. Um, people don't really speak about religion and so I probably was not as strong in faith as I should have been or even knew that I wanted to be. Moved here and it became a big part of my life Lee's from Mississippi, and he's a Baptist, and we got married. And I still think that without Lily's situation, I personally would not have grown as close to God as I needed to be. And us as a couple and a family, I really feel like it's strengthened our faith, our relationship with God. Um, Just have stronger faith now than ever before.
0: And when we come back, the rest of the story, Nicole and Lee Baker, their daughter Lily, and my goodness, family, faith, and friends. That's the social capital we talk a lot about here on this show, and it's what sustained this family, and I can't wait to get to the other side. You're going to hear a really redemptive and really beautiful resolution to this remarkable story. The Baker family story, here on Our American Stories. Yeah the Baker family story, and we pick up with the husband, Lee, sharing
7: about the strengthening of his faith through Lily's cancer. Um, it, I mean, my faith certainly got stronger. I think everyone goes through periods where, you, you know, it may get a little weaker during it because you, you ask so many questions, oh, you know, why would God allow this to happen, Things like that, and uh, but when when you get into uh, something like cancer and then everything else that went along with that, it and what we went through, you end up with that's all you do have, and then you start building. It starts to, you know, strengthen from that, and and it was like we all, all we had left there for a little while, and then you know we started to see prayers answered and. I mean, it's really, my faith has gotten a lot stronger. And and we felt so, you know, defenseless. It took it took forever before I realized, or to me, it, it seemed like it took forever before I realized that I was pretty much just getting myself through it and not, um, not helping uh, get her through it. It's something that if I could do differently, you know, I probably would have, There are a lot of resources there uh, at St. Jude with uh, counselors and, you know, uh, grief counselors, and I probably would have talked to people more, took more advice. One of the things you want to do early on is seclude yourself from the other families, and there are people that come around and try to talk to you and tell you what they've been through, and you're, you're not even ready to accept that your kid's got cancer, and so you distance yourself from them, and you avoid them, and and you don't take any of their advice, and you don't, you're not going to ask for help, and you, it takes a long time before you start accepting the help they offered.
4: No one should have to go through something like this alone. Thankfully, the bakers haven't had to, because not just their church, but their local Chick-fil-A did something especially special for Lily to make sure the bakers knew they had support. What happened at Chick-fil-A on your birthday?
1: The big print of We were
6: completely surprised. Chick-fil-A is Lily's favorite restaurant. I don't know, she has to take steroids once a month, and she gets so hungry. And all she wants to eat is chicken nuggets from Chick-fil-A. So she's there all the time. She draws them pictures. They know her. And we thought it was appropriate to have her birthday party there. And we thought it was just going to be a regular birthday party. We had about 12 of her friends, had some little prizes planned, but, you know, nothing big. And we got there, and I saw the old Miss cheerleaders and didn't think anything of it. And I was like, oh, they're probably hungry after a practice or something. And, you know, didn't think anything. But then shortly after we got there, the Chick-fil-A cow came out in a princess tutu and a troll's hat. It was a troll's themed birthday party. Lily was hysterical. She was just so excited. And then, before we knew it, everyone in the restaurant broke out in a flash mob. There was the ROTC, the Revelettes, the Oxford cheerleaders. Everyone was there in a troll hat dancing to Lily's favorite music, troll songs. It was such a surprise, wasn't it? We were all surprised. I was in tears the whole time. It's just so special. She sings all day long every day there is nothing that gets her down
7: I had no idea about it I I don't I don't get involved in the parties and everything anyway uh, so they just pretty much told me where to be and when and it's pretty amazing
4: here's Lance Reed owner and operator of the local chick-fil-a
8: my marketing director Lee Fife uh, she approached me because she knew the family and she um, she had told me that it was uh lily's birthday lily had a birthday already scheduled and lee wanted to do something really remarkable for lily knowing that story and so i told lee i said hey go out make it happen and so lee fife our marketing director she went out and approached uh, oxford schools and she got the um uh, old miss cheer and dance team and all of them involved and they worked on this flash mob and so when lily showed up for her birthday we had the Cow and and a, and a bunch of the Ole Miss and Oxford cheer people and ROTC and others in there, and they did this big flash mob for her right in the store, and it was such a, a an incredible. Um, uh, thing to see there and just the excitement on Lily's face and uh, it just it just really made her day for us one of our big hearts from a Chick-fil-a standpoint is that you know we're talking about always how do we have a positive influence or a positive impact on the lives that we come into contact with and so it was great some of our team members participated in the flash mob and other things but it was great for them to be able to see and experience that right there in the store it was very very, very impactful for them
4: over the last year the bakers have had to learn quite a lot. What kind of advice would Nicole give to those in her situation? I think just knowing that you're
6: not alone, just to open your heart to the things that people offer you. It's really easy to have pride and to say no. Like, you know, we we've always worked. We take care of our family. People wanted to give us donations. People wanted to give us things, and my initial reaction was, "No, we don't need it." You know, there's there's needy people out there. We're not those people, and I wanted to reject what people wanted to do for us. Um, and it took me a while to realize. And a friend telling me that this is their blessing to do something for you as well. So don't don't take away other people's blessings. And by allowing other people to help us, it, it has helped me. So it's hard to let down the pride and to accept others into your life, but once you do it, it'll benefit all.
4: Lee also has some advice of his own for the dads out there.
7: The only thing I would tell them is, you know, the 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 people at St. Jude, they're gonna, or the whatever cancer center, they're gonna take care of the kid, and you've got to take care of the whole picture, the whole, you know, your family and. You can try to do that by getting back to work as quickly as possible and keeping everything going at home. But the, the thing that I would tell the fathers is to, if it takes counseling or, or whatever it takes to to make sure that your relationship is staying strong, um, and that you're, you know, actually supporting your your wife, you know, you got to do whatever it takes to to make sure that you're. That you're uh, fulfilling that responsibility.
4: Lee goes on to share more about the cancer community and how getting involved can really help in the midst of all the emotions.
7: You know, we, we uh. we're getting we get involved in in some things with fundraising and, and stuff. Nicole uh, ran uh, the St. Jude half marathon this past year and raised over ten thousand uh, dollars for the for the kids and. Um, it was. Uh, it's one of the one of the times you get to see the, the happiness. Once you once you get through the worst part of it, and you can start getting involved in giving back.
4: It's like there's a bigger purpose. Yeah. But Nicole knows from experience that realizing that bigger purpose doesn't happen overnight.
6: <laughs> it takes a long time to get there, like Lee was saying. Um, <laughs> When you're first diagnosed, I was in, I was angry, I was in denial, and my friends said that they noticed when I walked through the hallways at St. Jude, I kept my head down because I didn't want to look around. I didn't want to see all the sadness, the bald kids. I didn't want to think of her being bald. I was like, this isn't happening, and I don't want any part of this, and other moms wanted to talk to me, and I was like, no, I don't want to be in the Cancer Mom Club, like, don't talk to me. Now I'm the mom trying to talk to all the other moms, and you do want to be in the club. Um, it's just quite a process. It's just mm-hmm. not about Lily having cancer. There's a bigger purpose for all of us, and it's amazing to see her, even as a four-year-old, four-year-old, to realize that. Um, and we see she's already sympathetic and empathetic towards other children with cancer, and has a giving heart. So it's not just about us and this little family. It's like, now what can we do? Like, people for years have fundraised and done research, and we had no idea what was going on. Basically just living selfishly, like, oh, you know, like, what are we going to do this weekend? Or, let's see if Lily can get involved in soccer. And you just realize it's not about any of that. Um, this last week, Thursday, when we went for treatment, Lily... It was literally a year from her diagnosis, March 14th. She went up to the hospital room where we stayed for about the first month and she was handing out umbrellas. Matilda Jane, a little fundraiser, and they had umbrellas for Lily to give out to other kids with cancer. And she walked in the room and she was like, here you go. Don't worry. You're not going to be in here for very long. It's going to be okay. Okay. And the parents started crying, and I was like, here, and they said, how is she? And I said, this is a year later, and look, she's fine. Because they were in our shoes, literally in that room, on that couch. They were crying, and I was like, this is your life a year later.
9: When you wish upon a star,
0: it makes
6: no difference who you are. And just seeing her, she went in other rooms, and she was giving the kids hugs and kisses, and it was just so special, and now... It's crazy to say, but leukemia has a purpose in her life and all of our lives, and I think it's going to be what we can do for other
0: people. When you wish upon a star, as do.
4: This is Faith Garcia from All American Stories.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything, the arts, sports, history, sometimes some policy, and never screaming, never yelling. And we love to tell soldiers' stories on this show, and first responders. And by the way, on the soldiers' front, we don't wait until Veterans Day or Memorial Day to tell those stories, because our men and women are out there every day, and always have been, all year round. And this story, well, it's a doozy. This is the man that other Army Green Berets think of when they need that little extra inspiration in the middle of a harrowing firefight. You know how much we love artists on this show, but no writer in Hollywood could have come up with this story. We're actually going to meet Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez later in this hour. But first, let's hear President Ronald Reagan read the unbelievable citation for his Medal of Honor, our nation's highest award for valor. And again, then we'll hear from Benavides himself, tell his life story that began with being a poor, orphaned, mixed-race dropout.
9: Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army, retired, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight, there is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968... Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Loc Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Benavides was at the forward operating base in Lachnin monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, He directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds we're in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant benedictus a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades living and dead awards you its highest symbol of gratitude for service above and beyond the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. What a
0: story, huh, folks? Yep, real American doing that. A real-life human being did that, not some movie character. And when we come back, we're going to hear from that real-life human being. We're going to hear from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez, Medal of Honor winner for his valor in Vietnam. And wait till you hear his voice. You're going to love him. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our podcast there. Listen to what we do there. More after these messages. This is our American stories, and we just heard President Ronald Reagan read an almost unbelievable Medal of Honor citation. But who is the man behind the legend? Here is Roy Benavidez himself telling us where it all began.
10: I come from a little town named Cuero, Texas. I was born there, in the Turkey capital of the world. After the death of my mother and father. At an early age, my brother and I were adopted by an aunt and uncle, and we moved to El Campo, Texas, a town southwest of Houston, by nine and a half. I was raised there. I went to school there. I worked at odd jobs, and shined shoes, sold papers, paid cotton. And like a fool, I dropped out of school and I ran away from home. I'm not proud of that. I needed to learn a skill. I needed... An education. My adopted father would tell me, son, an education and a diploma is the key to success. Bad habits and bad company will ruin you. Well, I was too old to go back to school. I didn't want to return back, so I joined the Texas National Guard, and I liked what I saw in men in uniform, and I qualified to join the regular army. I needed that education and learn the skill. So I was accepted into the regular army and I heard about airborne. I heard about that extra pay that you get for jumping out of airplanes. So I qualified to go to jump school in Fort Bend, Georgia, but the darn recruiters never told me what the training was like. For every mistake that you make, you do push-ups. And I can honestly tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm one of the guys that helped put Georgia into South Carolina doing push-ups. Well, I finished my training. I got assigned to a well-known unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the 82nd Airborne Division. And so, after a while there, I heard about the Special Forces. You know it as the Green Berets. And they were coming up, so I qualified to join the Special Forces. Of course, I'm a linguist. We and the Special Forces are trained to operate deep behind enemy lines with little or no support at all. We are trained in five specialties. I'm trained in three. Operation Intelligence, where I learn oceanography, meteorology, photography. I'm an interrogator and I'm a linguist. I'm trained in light and heavy weapons and cross-trained medic. I've been all over the world, the Far East, Europe, South and Central America, and two tours in Vietnam. I was assigned to Berlin, Germany, and I was declared one time that I was the only Hispanic American that could speak German with a Southern accent. Feeling So I came back and retrained at Fort Bragg and Vietnam was brewing up. In 1965, I was sent to Vietnam as an advisor to a Vietnamese infantry unit. After a short period of time there. I stepped on the mine. I woke up in the Philippine Islands in Clark Air Force Base. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I was declared never to walk again. I was transferred to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, Beach Pavilion. The doctors were initiating my medical discharge papers.
0: Now, most people would take a landmine paralysis and discharge papers as subtle hints to start plans for your retirement but not Benavides.
10: That night, I would slip out of bed and crawl to a wall using my elbows and my chin. My back would just be killing me. I would be crying. But I'd get to the wall, and I'd set myself against a wall, and I'd back myself up against a wall, and I'd stand there like Elijah the Indian, I stand there and move my toes right and left. right. Every single chance I got, a, I got... I wanted to walk, I wanted to go back to Vietnam because of what the news media was saying about us, our president was not needed there to burn the flag and what. And I saw a lot of other patients coming back, limbs missing. I wanted to go back. I was determined because I remember when I was taught in jump school, that old master sergeant would tell me, Benavides, quitters never win and winners never quit. What are you? I said, I'm a winner. I remember that my leader would tell me, faith, determination, and a positive attitude. A positive attitude will carry you further than ability. You can do it, Benavides. You can do it. I never forgot those three words, never. So there I was at night, I'd slip out of bed. The nurses would catch me sometime. They would chew me out, give me a pill, a sleeping pill, put me to sleep. They would tell the doctors in the morning. I was determined to walk. Nine months later, here comes my medical discharge paper. And I told the doctor, Doctor, look what I can do. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry. Even if you can stand up, you'll never be able to walk. I st- jumped out of bed, and I stood up right before him. My back was hurting, aching, and I was crying. And I moved just a little bit. The doctor said, Manavita, if you walked out of this room, I'll tear these papers up. I walked out of that ward at Beach Pavilion. I walked out, was a limp. I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I started my therapy again running 5 or 10 miles a day, doing 50, 100 push-ups. And I made three parachute jumps in one day. I was ready to go back to Vietnam, physically and mentally ready to go back. My orders were to go to Central America as an advisor. But being an uncommissioned officer and knowing some of the good officers in the right places, my orders were diverted. So So I went back to Vietnam in 1968.
0: And so now he's back in Vietnam, and the war, well, it's ramping up.
10: Later part of April, I was inserted, my buddy and I, to gather intelligence information behind enemy lines. After two days on the ground, my buddy was shot through the eye, the back, and legs. Our mission was completed, but I didn't want to leave my buddy behind. I called in for an extraction helicopter to come and get us out. They came in with the Maguire rig. McGuire rigs nothing but a piece of rope, nylon rope with a hook. In this case, there was two ropes. We hooked on. The enemy was firing at us. We pulled up, going up through the canopy of the jungle. Our ropes started to twist and rub. You know, nylon, had burns when it rubs. As we cleared the canopy, our ropes were completely twisted and rubbing. And there was a non-commissioned officer that looked out of the helicopter, he was riding as a safety man. And when he saw those two ropes burning, he immediately tied himself with a piece of rope around his waist, and he pulled himself out of the helicopter and undid those two ropes, separated them. That's dedication. That's love of fellow man and country. I'll never forget that man. We landed in a safe spot. My buddy was taken to the hospital shortly. Thereafter, he expired.
0: There was nothing more he could do for his friend, And so Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez naturally got right out and back to work again.
10: I was in another staging area waiting for an extra assignment. When I heard on the radio something like a popcorn machine, then I heard a voice, get us out of here, get us out of here, come in and get us out quick, ASAP. I asked the radio operator, who are those? He said, I don't know. They haven't gave us any call sign. And I saw some helicopters pilot run to the flight line, scrambling. I ran right behind him. We saw a helicopter coming in to land and had a door gunner slumped over his weapon. When the helicopter landed, I unstrapped a door gunner, Michael Craig, 19 years old. We'd just celebrated his 19th birthday in March. I cradled him in my arms, and his last words were, my God. My mother and father. I asked the pilot, who are the people on the ground? He said, hey, he said, that black NCO, that non commissioned officer saved your life the other day, remember? I said, Leroy Rides. Leroy always, get, always got picked for top secret assignments, him and Musso and O'Connor. So it was an instant reaction. I saw a bag of medical supplies, I picked it up, went over to my helicopter got on a helicopter we got on with the forward air controller the us in he said you can't go in there you can't go in it's too hot little did i know that i was going to spend six hours in hell
0: and when we come back more from master sergeant roy p benavidez his story here on our american stories just heard how Sergeant Benavidez heard his buddies being overrun over the radio so he decided to jump on a chopper against everyone's sane advice as he says he did not know that would be the start of his six hours in hell he was practically a one man army providing cover fire and darting back and forth to bring back friendly wounded and secure classified documents here again Master Sergeant Roy Benavides.
10: You heard what the president read, the citation of how I earned the Medal of Honor. But he didn't tell you of what I went through when I engaged in the hand-to-hand combat. I was hitting the mouth with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. After my last return back to the helicopter, when I was boarded on, I was holding my intestines in my hand. We lifted up the helicopter. Had over its payload, blood was flowing on both sides of the helicopter. When we landed, it locked in our staging area, and it started unloading. Started identifying the bodies. They found out I loaded three dead enemy soldiers in that helicopter. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. My mission was to recover the classified materials, so if anybody had it, not, uh, he was on a helicopter. <laughs> so they let they left the three enemy soldiers on the side, and because I sort of look Oriental, they thought I was one of them, so they let me lay right next to them. And they were putting us in body bags, and I, I remember that my feet being lifted, and I was inserted into the body bag, and I could hear that zipper coming up, and I thought, oh my God, no, no. My eyes were shut because I had blood all over my face, mine, and the blood had dried up in my eyelids, and I couldn't talk because my jaws were locked, and I could hear that zipper coming up, coming up, and one of my buddies was doing the Mexican head dance, and he was yelling at the doctor, that's Roy, that's Roy Benavides. The doctor said, sorry, there's nothing I can do for him. Oh, my God, that zipper just just coming up. I was trying to wiggle in my own blood. And finally, I'll find out later, Jerry Cottenham made that doctor at least to feel my heartbeat. When I felt that hand on my chest, I made the luckiest shot I ever made in my life. I spit in the doctor's face. So the doctor said, I think he'll make it. He'll... So, I, uh, I was uh, cleaned up, put in a helicopter, alongside with my buddy, one of the guys that I had saved. We got airborne, and I just said to myself, hold on, buddy, just hold on. We're going to get some medical attention. And his grip tightened up on me, and then he let go. I said, oh, God, why do you put me through this test? Why? You helped me get these men out, save them, save this material. And now you take them away from me. Why? And I was crying, I was moving so much. That's the co-pilot. He happened to look back, and he thought that I was gasping for air, so he gets out of his seat, gets his bayonet out, and he's going to do a track on me, and I'm about to kick him out of the helicopter. That's <laughs> just too much for one day. So they... We landed in the hospital at, at uh, Long Bend and I was wheeled to the operating room and as I was being lifted to my operating table I saw this nurse on her hands and knees crying, yelling, asking God why do you do this to these men? Why? Just crying. And as I turned a little bit to my left, I saw on the other operating table a man that had both legs and both arms missing I passed out. I woke up in the ward. One of my buddies was laying next to me. We were so bandaged up we couldn't talk. We used to wiggle our toes to make sure that we were still alive. After a short while my buddy was transferred from there and I thought he had died. I was transferred to Japan, Tachikawa. And that airplane that I was flying in, Medevac, we lost two men. And I remember this nurse kept yelling at me. says you're not gonna die on me. I'm gonna pinch you every time you close your eyes. I'm gonna pinch you, I'm gonna pinch you. Boy, she kept pinching me. When I got to Tachikawa, when I got to Japan, and they wheel me into the operating room, they disrobed me again. I remember the doctor, I heard him say, what in the world happened to you? Had blue spots, red spots all over me, and I said, That lady kept pinching me up there. <laughs> so after I went back to Fort Sam Houston, the Beach Pavilion, and I stayed in that hospital almost a year. I continued with my career, and then I was awarded with a medal.
0: And by the way, there are so many heroes in this story as we learn, and he's quick to give credit. Those nurses, boy, they do unbelievable work. You're not going to die on me, Benavidez. Boy, did she make sure of it. After all of this, Benavidez recovered, and then he moved back to Texas. For the rest of his life, he spread his message to young Americans.
10: I was dedicating myself to come and speak to schools, to civic groups, to help anyone that I can help my life was spared for a reason and I hope there's a good reason a lot of people call me a hero I appreciate the title but the real heroes are the ones that gave the life for this country the real heroes are our wives, our mothers above all the heroes are the ones that are laying in those hospital, disabled for life, in those hospital beds But the real heroes are the future leaders of our country, these students that are staying in school and learning to say no to drugs. Those are our real heroes. You know, there's a saying among us veterans, for those that had fought for it, life has a special flavor that protected will never know. You have never lived till you almost died. And it is us veterans that pray for peace most of all especially the wounded because we have to suffer the wounds of war. I'm asked hundreds of times would you do it over again? In my 25 years in the military I feel like I've been overpaid for the service to my country. There'll never be enough paper to print the money nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep from doing what I did. I'm proud of being American and even prouder and I'm even prouder that I've earned the privilege to wear the Green Beret. I live by the motto of duty, honor, country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless America.
0: What a speech. We got to play that a few times a year. It just has to be done. You've never lived until you almost died. And those three words, duty, honor, country. And they're not platitudes when you hear it from this man. They're real. He's the real deal. This is Lee Habib, Mastin Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story, The Medal of Honor winner, Vietnam vet, and just what an American. And what an American story. To hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. ouramericannetwork.org. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show. And we also love to tell your stories when you send them to us, and we promise we'll do that. That's why it's called Our American Stories, because it's you and us making this show together. And this next one comes from a listener named Troy Skinner, who sent in a recording of this powerful testimony that he gave at his local church.
5: My son Tyler was born... Very sick. One of my earliest memories following his birth is his breathing. His entire body convulsed so violently in and out that his ribcage practically touched his spinal column. I wouldn't have believed it was possible for a human body to do that if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. He was struggling to force down every breath, and he was failing in the struggle because his lungs weren't able to do their job yet. I thought for sure... He would die within minutes. He didn't. Over the course of a few days, his breathing steadied, but his skin had purple dots all over it, and it was yellow. Really yellow. Caused by elevated bilirubin in his blood. You might know this as having jaundice. A bilirubin is the junk that's supposed to be cleaned out of our blood, and a normal bilirubin count is supposed to be something like .0000001. I mean, essentially, it should be zero. Sometimes a baby is born with an elevated bilirubin, and their jaundice number is a one or a two, maybe a more dangerous three or a four. Well, Tyler's bilirubin number was well over three or four and kept going up. The liver is what cleans the garbage out of the blood, and Tyler's liver wasn't working, and so his jaundice number kept climbing. The doctors assured us that as long as the number didn't go into double digits, we'd be okay. And then it went into double digits. So then they explained, well, there's two parts to bilirubin. There's direct and indirect. And as long as the direct doesn't go into double digits, you'll be okay. And then direct went into double digits. Now his skin wasn't Yellow was green I mean seriously green <laughs> sometimes he would have this crunched up look on his face and he looked like the Grinch who stole Christmas and I would joke it's not easy being green the Billy Rubin climbed to well over 20 and that's when I asked the doctors how high can it go <laughs> they said we're asking that same question They checked the databases, they called around other hospitals and experts in the field trying to see what the deal was, and they said they couldn't find any record of anybody ever having a number so high. And it kept going up, all the way to 30.5. Tyler had a liver biopsy, underwent liver surgery. Consultation was sought from leading medical experts all around the nation. Nothing helped. We thought for sure that Tyler would die within weeks. He didn't. Tyler was sent home from the neonatal intensive care unit after two months, and we're convinced to this day that he was sent home to die. He had eight specialists needing to see him every week. Most of them needed to see him two, three times a week, and so every single day we took him to doctor's appointments, two or three appointments a day. It was on 12 different medications. We used to have to feed him by using a syringe to shoot the food down the back of his throat because he was too weak to suck and swallow. He'd be back in the hospital in about a month. He had biliary atresia surgery and bilateral hernia repair and hypospadia surgery and strabismus surgery and exploratory procedures and gastrointestinal intervention for reflux, esophagitis and thrush and other issues, both serious and relatively minor. And because of his condition, he needed to eat every two hours. And so we'd spend an hour getting his food and medicines prepared, and then we'd get him into his stomach with that syringe, and then we'd spend the next hour cleaning up his projectile vomit. All day. Every day. Tyler was sick. Everyone thought for sure he'd die within months. But he didn't. And the biggest threat to his life I haven't even mentioned yet. Tyler had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and pulmonary stenosis. His arteries were way too narrow and in the wall of his heart muscle was way too thick. Four times thicker than it should have been. He weighed five pounds and his heart was as thick as that of a 40-year-old man. We'd gotten to know our cardiologist pretty well at this point. We're seeing him pretty much daily. (laughs) So we had a relationship, and we asked him, be straight with us for our sanity. We needed an honest prognosis. And he hesitated, as doctors do when they're asked that sort of a question. But then he said, there was no medical reason why Tyler was alive even at that moment. And he would likely not see his first birthday, and there was just no way he would see his second He should have died in less than two years, and he didn't. Why? God had a plan and a purpose for this boy born sick. Fast forward a number of years, we have a 10-year-old boy who still couldn't eat solid foods. Everything had to be put through the blender first, pureed. He had recently learned to feed himself with a spoon, so that was good. We prayed in the name of Jesus Christ that and with not just us, it was a dedicated circle of prayer warriors praying with us for years. And when Tyler was 13, he finally was able to eat non-blenderized food for the first time. We threw a party. We celebrated this answer to prayer with all of our prayer warrior friends. We invited them all over with an official invitation. We had an invitation blown up to poster size, and everybody who attended the party signed it. If you come to our house, it is one of the first things you will see. It hangs in our foyer as a constant reminder that God answers prayer. So the lung problem went away, resolving itself on its own, so the doctors told us. The liver problem with the impossibly high bilirubin count went away, in spite of the failed efforts of the medical community. Many of his physical and developmental issues uh, were successfully addressed by highly trained Professionals, doctors, and therapists, with uh, unreal effort, love, and patience from my wife, Dina, sustained by God's grace. And now, after 13 years, he could eat real food amazing answers to prayer. But there was still this ticking time bomb, his heart. The hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the pulmonary stenosis were not getting better. He saw specialists in Orlando, New York, Syracuse, Buffalo, Baltimore, D.C., the best in the world at what they do, and there was nothing to be done. Every few months, he needed to go see his local cardiologist, a beautiful Muslim man, Dr. Hassan Abdallah. And every visit, Dina would say, we're praying for a miracle, Dr. Abdallah. And he'd smile and encourage And then Tyler started having these episodes where he couldn't get his breath and he would come into a room at night panicked, turning gray. Dina would hold him and rock him and would pump his arms and legs, trying to get blood flow and take him into the steaming shower, anything to try to help. And Dr. Abdallah then started asking to see Tyler every month. And every visit, Dina would say, We're praying for a miracle, Dr. Abdallah. Then the doctor sought second and third opinions, sending Tyler to medical facilities throughout the region. And suddenly, Dr. Abdallah stopped accepting payment for Tyler's visits. And we couldn't understand why. We found out later, it's because Tyler was dying, and the doctor didn't have the heart to tell us. His heart was breaking for us, as Tyler's heart after years of struggle. Was finally ready to just call it quits. That's why he couldn't breathe sometimes. That's why he turned gray. He was in heart failure. There was nothing to be done. All of the doctors had exhausted all of the options that their training and technology gave them. And yet, Dina kept trudging Tyler to doctor visit after doctor visit. And after seeing so many echocardiograms and EKGs, she became an expert in reading them herself. And it was time for another visit to Dr. Abdallah. And as usual, Dina greeted him by saying, we're praying for a miracle, Dr. Abdallah. And as usual, Dr. Abdallah politely smiled, got to work. And as he performed the echocardiogram, Dina watched as usual, but somehow it didn't seem as usual The echo looked different to Dina. And Dr. Abdallah noticed too. He kept looking and he adjusted his view and he checked where he'd already checked. Then he went back again. He kept performing the procedure and taking much longer than usual. And Dina began to think she understood why. And the doctor turned to Dina and said, do you see that? And Dina said, yeah, look to her. The image of Tyler's heart was normal. And Dr. Abdallah removed his glasses and wiped a tear from his cheek. And he looked at Dina straight in the eyes and he said, Who do you pray to? She answered, Jesus. We pray to Jesus. And Dr. Abdallah said, well, your Jesus has healed your son. And they embraced and they enjoyed a long cry together and they rejoiced together at what Jesus had done. One of them having just been reminded of who Jesus is and the other one having just been introduced to who Jesus is.
0: And what a beautiful story. The Skinner's story but in the end an American story. How we really live folks. Who we are. How beautiful we are. And my goodness the heart we have. This is our American Stories.